Well, I want to thank all of you. Um, you've been going along with this study in Daniel for the last number of weeks, along with the east side and the west side. <clears throat> and um, that means that you all have been reading a lot of the Old Testament uh, during all of your services. And um, I've been aware of it every single week. Uh, it just, you know, sort of like keeps going and going. And um, I, it makes me really proud to be a part of a church uh, that devotes this much time and attention, uh, not just to uh, the Bible, but to the Old Testament maybe in particular. And we've been going through this study of Daniel and uh, we've been talking about, as a result, the faith of the church, um, entitled sort of a, a series. And we've been thinking together about, about faith, looking at Daniel's life. And um, today, uh, which is Christ the King Sunday in the church, according to the church calendar, which means it's the last Sunday before the beginning of the season of Advent. Um, today, Christ the King Sunday feels like maybe a particularly fitting day um, to be thinking together, studying together um, about the faith of Daniel, which was, of course, um, faith that existed and not only existed, but thrived in the most unlikely of places. Um, Daniel sort of like held out hope and held out faith in God um, when the world around him, of course, did not. And in fact, encouraged him in every other way to sort of abandon it and give up and lose hope. And he didn't. And the reason it feels especially fitting for a day like today is because um, on Christ the King Sunday, in a day where we would come together at four o'clock in the afternoon and sing songs about Jesus being king, that, that's not something that exists um, outside of the church. That's not something that's happening in other places. Like if you step outside and meet somebody on the sidewalk, for example, it's not like anybody's going to look at you and say, you know, well, glory be to God, today is Christ the King Sunday. You know, that's just probably not going to happen to you. And so um, here, when we gather and we sing these songs and we like hold up Jesus as king, and that's like an affirmation of my faith that I can say to you as a Christian and trust that that's something that we can celebrate together. It's not unlike what Daniel was doing whenever he got down on his knees in his room and he opened his windows towards Jerusalem and he prayed. There's something about that kind of faith that not only persists in really hard places, but can actually really thrive and grow. And so all that to say, I think what you're doing and being here on a day like today is a really lovely, and not just lovely, but I think powerful thing, the faith that is in you. So um, we're going to study Daniel 6, which um, we read you know, a number of minutes ago, and you're gonna have to try to remember the whole chapter. But I suspect... Uh, that you have heard it before, at least most of you. Uh, it's a famous story, a famous Sunday school story, one that I have heard um, and read no less than I'm sure hundreds of times over the course of my life. And I wanna tell you, one of the things that never ceases to amaze me about the Bible is the, even that being the case. Um, I'll never read that story again the same after this um, last week of, of study and sitting with it in light of my life and where I am with God now and where we are as a church, you know, it just sort of life has a way of changing the way you see things and the things that stand out and the things you notice. And so that's certainly been true for me. And so there um, are a lot of things to say about a story like this. I'm gonna focus our time together on two images that have really stuck out to me as I was reading the story um, and just sort of um, focus our time together looking at them and what they might mean in a sort of symbolic way for, for us and where we might be with, with God. So the, f the first of them, the first of these two images is, uh, if you'll remember, there's the image I just mentioned, Daniel's window. He had a window in his upstairs room that was open 
um, to face towards Jerusalem. And so um, maybe just the first thing to say is that um, you want to note that we're not in, we're not talking about Babylon anymore. Uh, Babylon has been conquered and defeated at this point by the Medes and the Persians. And so we're no longer dealing with King Nebuchadnezzar now. We're dealing uh, with King Darius. And uh, they, you know, whether it's the Babylonians or the Persians, and the story doesn't matter so much, um, they don't like um, Daniel's faith in God either way. And um, so these, there are these Persian officials who conspire against Daniel um, in order to sort of trip him up, to accuse him, set him up, and um, they do so according to his, his faith in God. And they make a law, or they encourage uh, Darius to make a law that outlaws prayer to anyone um, except to him for a certain period of time. And uh, what is so interesting to me about the story is that uh, Daniel, who is now uh, no longer a child, but an older man, um, of course, as if the law never exists or he never heard anything about it, just simply continues on doing what he had always done, which was to go up into his room three times a day, open his window and pray, facing towards Jerusalem. And that, um, that image of Daniel being in Babylon and having his windows open and praying three times a day towards Jerusalem has really stuck with me um, for the past week or so. And I've been thinking through, you know, like what that might have meant for him, what it might mean for, for us, for me. And, uh, you know, in, in thinking about it, praying towards Jerusalem, the significance of Jerusalem had always been a thing uh, since its uh, founding. But the idea of praying towards Jerusalem took on particular significance in the days of the exile and after um, for obvious reasons, right? Uh, Jerusalem, like in the Psalm that we read in Psalm 46, um, was believed to be the footstool of God. It was um, in, in so many ways, it meant an especially thin place, a place where God would establish his kingdom and sort of rule and reign in a way that was different and unlike, and in that way, an example to the rest of the world. And uh, in so doing, Jerusalem was going to be the sort of the foundation for the redemption of the rest of the world. It was like the starting place. So whatever God intended to do for the, all of the world would start with Jerusalem. And that was a hope, a belief that persisted even through the exile um, and after, which is incredible. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, during the days of David to look at Jerusalem and be like, yes, the hope of the world is here. It's another thing to look at Jerusalem in the days of the exile and after when it was quite literally a pile of rocks and look at it and say, there, behold, the hope of the world, you know. And so it was to that pile of rocks, that rubble, which could have been to the cynic or any number of people, um, a, an example, a vision of God's failure, failed promises. And yet for Daniel, it was something other. Daniel turned himself towards Jerusalem on purpose in order to practice hope. One scholar that I read put it this way. Jerusalem is the summation of all the redemption that is to come. To prohibit a person from turning the body and the mind toward Jerusalem is to quench that person's vision and to deprive that person of a reason for being. What the Persian wise men hold against Daniel is his hope. And I... Um, you know, kept thinking about that and imagining those windows open and what it would have been like for the Persian officials, you know, on the ground looking up at those windows open, you know, and like, you know, how it would have enraged them and provoked them to see Daniel, you know, praying three times a day. And yet it's interesting to think about the effect it would have had on the other exiles, um, which I imagine that the effect for them would have been decidedly different, right? Whereas for Persians, it would have, um, elicit rage 
Um, but for exiles, I believe that Daniel intended it to be a kind of a sign, a sign of hope, um, a reminder that God had not abandoned them. And you can say that with words, and you can tell people that on the street, and you can also demonstrate that um, in the way that you live your life, which I believe is what Daniel did. And there weren't, um, you know, if we're taking from the text, there weren't a lot of people doing that. Um, we have reason to believe that maybe Daniel was the only exile left um, anyway who was praying with his windows open towards Jerusalem and looking with his eyes fixed on Jerusalem to, as if to say, God is coming. I believe he is. And so here's what I want to say about that. I think one of the primary markers of our faith ought to be as, as exiles, as people who, according to the New Testament, are away from our home, if our home is the kingdom of heaven, which is a renewed and a redeemed world in which Jesus is, is reigning um, in a visible way, in a fulfilled way, and we're not there yet. And so we live here now in this moment as exiles. One of the primary markers of our faith should be like Daniel's to practice hope, I think. And that is um, one of those words that always sounds really good and I think we have a hard time knowing exactly what it means or what it looks like to do that. Um, I think Daniel had managed to do it in a very tangible and a very practical way and that's why it stands out to me so much. Hope for him was something he did. It was something he felt, something he believed, but it was also something he demonstrated with actions that were decidedly counter to the world around him, a corrective to them that provoked them. So the question to me then as a follower of Jesus in this cultural moment is, do I have signs of hope? Because act, an act of resistance without hope or for a reason is just like rebellion. And rebellion on its own like doesn't lead to anything good. There's no life in that rebellion for the sake of rebellion, resistance for the sake of resistance. But hope is something altogether different. And it's not like Daniel decided because the edict existed now, he would begin to in some you know, rebellious way, throw open his windows and pray. He just like kept doing what he'd always done, regardless of what Persia did. And there's something really beautiful and instructive about that to me. Um, hope is not the absence of doubt or fear. Hope is feeling doubt and fear and choosing to act in faith and persevere with the intention of redeeming the thing that makes you feel afraid and makes you doubt. Hope is not the absence of doubt or fear. It's choosing to persevere in the direction you're headed, act in faith with the intention of redeeming the things that make you doubt and make you feel afraid. There's agency in hope. It's an active thing. It's for the sake of something. So if you're somebody who feels lost in your faith or someone prone to despair in general, um, then I think that there is a real invitation from the Lord to like open a window and start to practice hope in a very tangible way. If you don't feel hopeful, ask yourself what practices you have that might cause you to be hopeful or not. For example, the reason Daniel prayed towards Jerusalem is because there was a promise associated with Jerusalem that he believed and hoped in. And the only way he could know that is like is if he knew that, right? He had to know that promise in order to pray towards Jerusalem. 
So in my own life, I've been asking, like, do, am I able to say no the promises of God? Because as an exile living in a place away from home, I need to know the promises of home. I'd be able to give voice to them. What are they? So that I can like orient myself towards them in real tangible ways, hope for them, look for them. If you don't know them and you're like, oh, where would one go about finding the promises of God? I'm so glad you asked. Psalm 91, Psalm 146, Isaiah 26, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 5, and Revelation 21. There are others. There's a whole Bible full of them. Those are just some of my favorites. Some of the ones that I realize today that if I found myself um, in a desolate place and without any signs of hope, that these are the things that I would have in me in a way that Babylon couldn't take from me. They'd have to carve out my heart in order to separate me from the promises of God. And so long as I have them in here, no one takes them. And I get to orient myself towards them. And there's, there's a tangible call, I think, for the church in that. I don't think Daniel was praying, I said earlier, to prove a point. If Daniel had opened his window and screamed out um, at the streets below, Jerusalem is our home, down with Darius, you know, and raged against um, the machine that way, it would be a different story for me. Um, and so I've been thinking about that too, because, uh, raging against the things that frustrate me about our culture, about our politics, about the faithlessness of the church in some ways, it doesn't get me anywhere. And I'm a person prone to raging, at least internally. And I always lose when I do that, when I'm tempted to do that. And I was thinking about that and realizing that if our ideals, the things that we hope for, end up making us angry at other people and costing us peace and the ability to be hopeful, then we're participating with our enemy, not working against him. If your ideals have robbed you of the ability to be hopeful and peaceful, to extend grace to the people around you, in intangible ways walk differently for the sake of hope, and love, then you are cooperating with your enemy, not working against him. In just a few weeks' time, a number of us are going to be sitting, I suspect, at dinner tables, surrounded by people um, who hold very different ideals. And it's one of the great causes of anxiety this time of year is how will we ever survive? I just, I wanna ask you to ask yourself what it might look like for you to be a kind of open window, for you to be a person of hope that when you sit down at a table, rather than deepening the dividing lines, you are someone people can look through and see Jesus. What would that mean for you? If people could look through you and your life and through your words and hear the hope of heaven, that's something for us to go into this season saying, oh, man, I hope I get a chance to sit at a table with people who are different from me and be a sign of hope for them.
That's the spirit of Advent, I think. So the second image that I have really been turning around, mulling over, is, um, is the image of Daniel surrounded by those lions and coming up out of the den unharmed. What a really powerful thing to think about, you know, those hours that Daniel would have spent in the lion's den. Uh, For centuries, Christians have been noting the parallels between this story in Daniel 6 and the the story of the last days of Jesus's life, his trial, condemnation, and crucifixion, and subsequent resurrection. There are a number of um, striking, stunning even, parallels between the two stories. I'll just name a few. Daniel's story begins with a conspiracy and betrayal, just like the story of the final days of Jesus's life. Darius is sympathetic to Daniel, even advocates for him against all odds, just like Pontius Pilate when Jesus was taken before him for sentencing. Both Daniel and Jesus are convicted and sentenced to death, both face execution, and both have their tombs secured with giant stones and sealed with a royal seal. And most stunning of all, both come out alive. Daniel never having experienced death and Jesus having experienced it and then defeating it. And so for centuries, Christians have been looking at Daniel 6 and that story and seeing it as a kind of incredible, like prophetic foreshadowing of the life that Jesus would live and the death that he would die. And even in, before they could have ever given voice to it, the resurrection that he would bring. Um, and I've been thinking about that, that Daniel's life, the life he lived was a foreshadowing of the story of Jesus, of his life and and the life that Jesus would ultimately, the story he would ultimately come um, and fulfill. And it made me wonder like if in some way then that doesn't mean that for me, my life, the life that I live now is a life that is meant to always bear witness and point toward the victory of Jesus. That if I get to my li- the end of my life, that in reflecting back on my story, if people might not be able to look at it and see resemblances of Jesus, semblances even of the life that he lived, if wouldn't, and that's to say that inevitably, if I am a person living my life as I'm called to, following Jesus, it is going to bring me into confrontation. I am going to be met with resistance. I'm going to face the threat of from somewhere and in some ways on a daily basis. And so it's how I enter into those things that's the question. And what happens as a result of my passing through those difficulties that will determine the extent to which it does or does not resemble Jesus. So over the years, I've seen a number of um, representations of this story, paintings, and there are a lot of them. My favorite is um, by Henry Osawa uh, Turner. He's the artist that is, his art is often depicted on the west side. And we have this painting, his painting of Daniel in the lion's den up in the atrium when you walk in the church building. And it's my favorite because in um, Tanner's painting, the lions um, do not look like their jaws have been wired shut. They're not like growling and ready to pounce, you know, if they could just, you know, find the, the wire to unleash, unleash their jaws. Um, they're not 
growling, ready to tear Daniel to shreds, and Daniel isn't cowering in the corner in fear. In Tanner's representation, the lions look submissive. They look curious. Um, But they're just sort of, you know, doing their thing. Tail twitching, one of them at Daniel's feet. And uh, Daniel is sort of sitting up uh, with his hands crossed across his lap. And he looks very calm and authoritative, like maybe he's praying. And I think um, that's such a powerful representation of this story because of what it assumes was true which is that when Daniel entered the lion's den for whatever it means for God to shut the mouths of lions, it doesn't just mean that God literally just shut their mouths, but that there was an override of their instinct, right? That lions actually turned into pets and that Daniel was able to enter into a situation like that, maybe not fearless, but once he got there and saw what happened, he was able to take it on with some authority, some calm, some peacefulness. And so if I'm imagining the story of Jesus um, through Tanner's lens and through the lens of this story, I, it, makes, it changes kind of the way that I think about um, what it might have been like for Jesus to enter into death. Um, that maybe he entered it a lot like Tanner's Daniel, that he went into it with some amount of calm and peace and certainly a lot of authority. And that maybe even the demons of hell responded to Jesus in the way that Daniel's lions responded to him. And that's really powerful for me to think about because it is a reminder to me that in this cultural moment, when I am called to face resistance, to stare down my threat and my fear, I serve a God who turns lions into pets and crosses into thrones. Like that's the point of the story, that God's ability to make the things that threaten me serve me. And not me, ultimately, his purposes through me and in me. That is a, that's a powerful thing to know as an exile, living away from home. You will indeed be threatened for your faith or for any number of reasons. Because we have an enemy who just likes, I think, to torment and torture people and make them feel afraid. You don't have to be particularly holy or faithful or righteous to be met with that kind of resistance. If you are a person right now who lives your life feeling threatened by any number of things, then I believe there is a word of hope in the story like this for you. Can you close your eyes and imagine the things that threaten you currently? What would it look like for God to take hold of those things, take authority over them, and ultimately in your life use them to serve his purposes of redemption, what would that look like for you? I can call to mind the things that make me feel afraid, that threaten me. And so as an act of faith, I feel called by God to put those, name them before him and say, in the same way you took authority over the lions, in the same way you took authority over the cross, I ask you in Jesus' name to take authority over all that threatens me so that I can walk in faith and peace and confidence, which is fitting of somebody who bears the name of Jesus, who's modeled my life after the likes of Daniel and others. It's a lot to think about in a Sunday school story. 
I suspect probably why it's stuck around all these centuries. I commend it to you and those images to you. I pray that the Lord would use them as powerfully in your life as I believe he has in mine over the last few days. Let's stand together if we're able. Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. My name is Trip Prince, and I'm the parish pastor here at Trinity on the north side. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people growing into Christ's likeness. You can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting us online at atltrinity.org. God bless you and have a great week.